Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corbrew. What's good, revolutionaries? Yes, I am excited. Episode one of season three. Man, it has been a long, long journey, and I am super excited to start this season off. You know, last year was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me to interview a number of men who are doing exceptional things in the world. And it's interesting, I got to interview one of my frat brothers, the executive attorney for the Southern Policy Leadership Center here in New Orleans, Victor Jones. He was my last guest of last season. But one of the things that rem- you know resonated with me is that he said sometimes, you know, bliss, ignorance is bliss. And I took with that the rest of the year. We had the show early December, and I took with that, and it resonated with me in my thoughts is that sometimes you cannot know what you're going to do. You just have to act. And that's what I've been doing since that conversation is not letting the fear, not letting the thoughts that come into my brain deter me. Mel Robbins talks about in her book, The Five Second Rule, five, four, three, two, one, and just go. If you think about that in your life, revolutionaries, you know, ignorance is bliss. Don't worry about what may be. Don't worry about the consequences that you have conjured in your head just to act on your revolution. And I know that we're two months in. It's March, but I'm sure, hopefully, I'm sure, and I'm not going to say hope, that you have talked and thought about what your answer to what we think here is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? And as I say every time we do the show, If you need help in answering that question, I am here for you. Please make sure you can DM me uh, at Twitter and Instagram at What's Your Revolution. You can email me at ccorporu at wyrevolution.com. You can hit me up on my Facebook page at Charles Corporu, and I'll be happy to help you think through and answer our question. I'm always blessed, you know, 30 years, you know, since walking in those hallowed halls at James Madison University. But I remember early on, man, meeting some good, good brothers, man, who lived in various dorms around campus that were close. We lived in the village, if I'm correct. That, yeah, we lived in the village. And you meet good brothers who you know at that time, these brothers are going to be doing good things, but you just never know what, what that's going to be. But you, you see the sharpness. You see the edge to them. You see the smile. You see the leadership. And my guest today is a brother that I hadn't seen since we graduated from college, but we connected at our, yes, 25th class reunion a couple years ago. And what I got to see then, and, and, and I began to follow him on his social media, is the edges, is the sharpness, is the leadership that I knew was going to be there actually 30 years ago now when we met as freshmen at James Madison University. So today I have on my show my good friend, my Jam U Duke brother, Melvin J. Brown, superintendent of Reynoldsville, Reynoldsburg, Ohio. Dear brother, what's going on? How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good to be man. on. Yes, yes, man. I am I am blessed, brother. 
I am blessed. One of the things that I've done this year at, at the urging and of my mother is to go back into my faith. So I am blessed to be able to be here with you, to share this time, dear brother, and to learn more about your revolution. And so you can tell the world how you're changing the lives of students across Ohio, across Reynoldsburg, and how you're impacting men all across the country. So let's jump in, brother. So you know, as I told you, I'm going to ask you that ask you that question. Mel, what's your revolution? I, I think I'm driven based, my experiences as a, as a student myself drive what I do now. I want kids to have a better experience than I did, but I also want them to have some of the same types of people in their lives that can influence them to go in the right directions as I also had in mine. I, you know, I'm writing my dissertation, I talk about my kindergarten teacher, my fifth grade teacher, my junior high principal, my high school principal. These people impacted me greatly and I would not be doing what I'm doing right now if not for them. I want to create those types of environments for kids every day. I don't want them to have to go through a school year or a school day for that matter where people aren't in their lives who are going to feed knowledge and confidence and feed their abilities and give them a sense of wonder and power. I I want them to get that every single day. So my mission, my, my revolution is to continue to work wherever I might be, whatever capacity it is, to make those things come to life for kids. Yeah, no doubt, brother. It's interesting, Mel, that you say that. And people have heard on this show, I talk at length about Green Run High School. And we, before this show, we talked about both of our good friend, Aaron Spence, who's the superintendent mm-hmm. of Virginia Beach Public Schools. And he and I grew up in a setting like that. It's interesting that you talk about the teachers that you had an impact, that had an impact on you, dear brother, because that's what education is about, being able to look back and say, I'm here because of them. Absolutely. Yeah. You talk about your dissertation. You talk about some of the people who were influential for you. Look back for me, Melvin, and give me an experience with one of those teachers that impacted you and and tell a little story about them and why they were so impactful on your life. Well, it's funny that this is my example, because I, I don't know how many people can go back and really reference their kindergarten teachers. But my kindergarten teacher had such an influence on my life that she will never know. She she opened up doors I didn't think existed. So I'm, I'm from a very impoverished household, single parent household. We didn't have much. My mom was doing whatever she could to make sure we were successful. By the time I started kindergarten, my mom was only 22. So, you know, she still learned how to be a mom herself. So when going to school, my teacher discovered my story and she knew what I brought to the table. But then she also found out very shortly what type of mind I had or what type of capability I had, even though I didn't know. And she pushed me. She had me doing grade level work that was way beyond kindergarten. She had me to the point where, you know, she would keep me in for recess to do third grade math. And I didn't care. Right. I enjoyed it. And she told me basically what she saw in me. And that that confidence, that that sense of, of self, that has stayed with me forever. Mm. That's given me the power to look at people 12, 15, 20 years later and use that confidence that she gave me as a five-year-old to get done what I needed to get done. Because I also talk with my teachers about the impact they can have on kids positively or negatively. Because I have one of those experiences as well with a high school counselor who told me not to apply to James Madison University because wow. I didn't do well. The confidence my kindergarten teacher gave me enabled me to look that counselor in the face and say, well, I'm not really looking for your permission. I just need your signature. <laughs> and I wouldn't have been here. That was me as a high school senior saying that to my counselor. No one else gave me that sort of energy except my kindergarten teacher. Mel, it's, it's interesting that a kindergarten teacher and then that 12-year span, 13-year span from kindergarten uh-huh. to your senior year in high school, that someone 
knowing your prowess in high school would say that you can't. And uh-huh. we've all had we've all had those experiences. So all we had deal it, with. You know, and but I love that the confidence that you were able to take from your kindergarten teacher to say, I don't I don't really need your approval for this. I don't actually need your approval for this. I just need your signature because this is where Absolutely. I'm going. Exactly. Absolutely. And I remember that same thing, having one of my teachers in high school say, well, Chucky, because that's what she called me. And I loved I loved her. She was a, she was like, yeah, that school's just not for you. Really? <laughs> really? It's funny now. And I'm sort of the impending Dr. Brown, you know, as you're writing your dissertation. Uh-huh. You know, who was going to think that at the end of the day, these two PhDs, right, people who told them that, hey, maybe you shouldn't have gone to this school or maybe you can't attain this level of education, right, this terminal degree that puts you into the, what are we going to say? I want to say the glad, the ivory tower, right, right, uh-huh. allows you to step into spaces and open doors that, you know, they didn't think that you could even be in the building with. Absolutely. Yeah, and so I applaud you, dear brother. I, look, I know that process oh too well as you're writing that dissertation. So I, I wish you good luck. Let's stay so with your, yeah, let's stay with your kindergarten teacher, you know, for huh? one second. And you know, if you remember a conversation with her, you know, one of those things that gave you confidence. I know it's been a long time, but what was one of the the values that she instilled in you in in one of those conversations? I recall, well, first of all, I'm an English, I was an English major, James Madison. So words, sentences, writing, that's my thing. Math was never really my thing. She made it my thing. I remember sitting with her one afternoon, I think it was in the spring, and it was one of those days where we were going to, she kept me in to, to work on some third grade math. And we're doing multiplication with double digit numbers. And I'm looking at this stuff and I'm like, well, my cousins brought this home. My cousins who are three, four, five years older than me. They brought this home the other night saying they didn't know how to do it. So how am I supposed to do it? She's like, oh, you can do it. (laughs) And sure enough, I remember her walking me through the process and giving me support to make sure I knew what I was doing and then watching me work and then encouraging me to keep going. She was, I I don't know, I don't know if she took a liking to me specifically because I also had a crush on her. So I should also admit that. (laughs) Miss Franco was my kindergarten teacher and I had a crush on her too. So (laughs) it's all good. So I don't know if that's what motivated me, who knows, but she just brought stuff out of me I didn't know I had. So I would go home after school and all my older cousins would be doing their homework and whatnot. And I'm done and finished. And they're like, we don't know how to do this. Go ask Melvin. But he's in kindergarten. He knows how to do it. <laughs> yeah, that that value of that you can, that value of that you can overcome the perseverance, you know, and we, you know, you being an alpha man and me being an omega man, that there's, you know, that that stick toitiveness, whatever the word is Definitely. within our within our fraternities, is Definitely. you know, it it means to go forward no matter what, to persevere. And, you know, it's interesting that that is instilled in a five-year-old boy from his kindergarten teacher and that you continue that value throughout the rest of your life. I, I love that. And the question that I have for you as you think about, because, you know, we'll talk about your trajectory and we'll start with your teaching. How did you use, you know, and, and let's call it, what was your teacher's name? Mrs. Marchant. Mrs. Martin, how did you translate her teachings as you began your journey as an educator? You know, I think now we talk about relationships with kids being so important to education and, and their learning, which is definitely true. But now we actually purposefully do PD and we do all this training in order to foster those things. She did those innately. And this is 1976. So I think what I tried to pull from her was like, 
if you're going to have, if you're going to reach kids, if you're going to take them to a level that they don't think they can go to, you have to establish a relationship with them and make them understand that you care before you teach anything. And if those kids don't think you care about them, they're not going to learn anything. Right. Especially students of color. Absolutely. I remember my first years of teaching, you know, they would say, the older teachers would say, oh, you can't smile until December or, or they'll run over you. I'm like, no, nah, no, they're not. <laughs> no, if kids don't have that kind of relationship, they're, they're not going to reach their capacity or they'll do so despite you. I, I believe most kids need that adult in the room who believes in them, who invests time in them to get to know them in order for them to be successful. Exactly. Relationships are everything. And you know, even at the the highest levels that you're at now as a superintendent, that relationship building is still key. You know, before we even talked on the show, we talked about the relationships that we have, the relationships that we, you know, have that actually bring us back together, right? And, and how we've built that. And so it's so key. And, and how we value those relationships and how we use them to help people and and in turn, have them help us as well. And so that is a key because ultimately the outcome is that we want to see students successful and we want them to know that they spend so much time with us, that they're cared and they're loved. Absolutely. Yeah. And their success, it's a success that they get to define and we don't get to define that for them. Too often we say, oh, you're fit for this or this is good for you. No, let kids see everything and let them make their own choices. Man. And support them in their choices. Yes, 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 yes. And I love the way you say it, is that they have the ability to define it for themselves. Absolutely. Exactly. What success. And I know, you know, we could get into the technical terms around what this looks like, individual individualized learning, what this looks like. But at the core of it is... I want to walk into a building as a student and know that this is not a place that is just trying to beat me down with information so I could mm-hmm. I can pass a test, right? If exactly. we think of if we think of schools as a place for the whole child that we're not just arbiters of of information that we are Absolutely. cultivators of life. Absolutely. We yeah. talk often in district about the whole notion of testing obviously being something we're measured by and it, and it's important. But it, it won't matter what we do to prepare for a test if the environment of the classrooms isn't conducive to kids feeling like they have a sense of belonging or that they have a place there. We can do all this testing and gr- drilling and whatever we want to do. They're still going to be doing poorly if they don't feel like they belong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, Mel, you moved on. You moved on. And it's interesting. I want you to tell this story is that one day... You know, you've been teaching for how many years now when this person comes into the room? I think this was my, this was about my seventh year teacher, I think it was. Seventh uh, year teaching. Yeah, right. I think I was in a middle school teaching language arts and social studies. My superintendent at the time in, in my home district, actually, where I went to school, mm. dropped by my classroom and encouraged me to apply for an, a vacant elementary principalship that was going to open in the summer. And I looked at him like he had two heads and, <laughs> You know, I haven't been an assistant. I've never been an administrator. What do you mean? He said, no, we, we, we want you to apply for it because we feel like you bring something to the table that we want there. And I said, uh, okay, I'll, I'll apply, thinking there's no way in the world I'm getting this job. So I go into the interview, and I, I think it went, I think it goes pretty well, but I'm going to use this experience to catapult it to something else. I'm going to be an assistant principal at a high school somewhere so I can go the, the traditional tra- trajectory up, up the chain, if you will. It turns out two days later, they offered me the job as an elementary principal at age 28. Wow. And my first two days on the job, I had no idea what I was doing. 
but I figured it out. Yeah. And I want to unpack here, Mel, is that there's something that that superintendent saw in you. He did. Right. And particularly my hypothesis is that he saw the leadership skills that have to be in place to lead, right? To be able to empower, to be able to move strategy and trajectory. What do you think that he saw in you at 28 to say, I'm going to catapult you, propel you over other people? You've never been an administrator. Yeah. Right. What did he see in you? I I think initially he saw my passion for kids. He knew what I'd done. There's a number of kids who demonstrated some challenges and what they did in my class versus other classes. Mm, Tell Uh, the story. He knew that was there. He knew on our faculty at our middle school, my principal at the time was my former high school track coach, by the way. (laughs) He knew what kind of vocal person I was on, on, on the faculty and working with leadership to try to do, to create environments. And I didn't even know what kind of environments we were creating. I just figured it sounded good. These are things, this is how it should look. I didn't know anything at that point, but I think he saw that there was some capacity for a lot of growth and a lot attainment of a lot of knowledge that could impact a, a larger group of people. Interesting thing about the school to which I was assigned, it was also vacated by someone who was also a product of our school district, who was two years ahead of me in high school. Wow. Who is now superintendent of uh, Hampton City Schools. Really? Okay. All right. The staff was used to having somebody that they used to teach lead. (laughs) So in many ways, he, he blazed some trails for me as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's amazing, you know, and and thinking through that. And, you know, as my leaders who are early in their journey, who listen to the show, who who are trying to figure out their way, what were some of the lessons that you learned, right? Because you're thinking, you tapped me for this. I've never led like this, but I've got to learn on the job. What are some of the takeaways for you from that, that you really said, you know what? Wow, this experience allowed me to develop this. I think one of the biggest things about that I learned about leadership it, it, is that it isn't about you and what you say or what you do. It's about how you create an environment that lets others be part of the process. Mm-hmm. I always say my goal at the end of a conversation, my goal is to make someone do what I want them to do without them knowing I want them to do it. <laughs> Jedi mind trick. Absolutely. If I can plant a seed in your brain about what I want to see happen, and then you all of a sudden regurgitate that back to me in some way, shape, or form, great idea. Let's go with it. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, you know, the old school principal is the one who said, we, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You can't do that in today's schools. You have to be very nimble. You have to be very humble. You have to be willing to put yourself aside and let others do their work. And the hardest part that I, I've now learned in this role, I can't always be the one to do the work. I've got to set the vision and provide the supports and then step out of the way and let people do their jobs. Wow. Wow. That was hard for me because I was so used to doing the grunt work. Mm -hmm. That was a difficult transition for me. No, tell that story. That's interesting because many of us, and and I'm I'm thinking about the uh, leaders and entrepreneurs who listen to my show as well. And running a school is just, just like running a business. And right. So you're thinking about your strategy. You're thinking about the mission and vision. How are you going to get your employees to basically produce a product for your customers, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that your customers want to keep coming back because they're seeing results. The results are that they are excelling. And so the results are that you have great test scores, that you have great morale, that teachers want to come and work for Melvin J. Brown, right? All of these different things as you, as you think about. But the one key thing that you said is that you've got to be able to set a vision and then get out of the way. 
right? And that means that you have to understand what does capacity building look like, right? Effective. And for you, it's bringing in the right teachers, bringing in the right assistant principal to work with you, right? And then mm -hmm. saying, this is my vision, giving them the PD and professional training that they need, and then go. And then you are the greatest cheerleader that they can have. Absolutely. It was such a difficult tra transition. So I'm thinking early on in my superintendency, we're in the process of assessing where we are as a school district and at the same time trying to push some initiatives forward. And I'm like, oh, we'll do this and we're going to do this. And we're going to do this. And here I am trying to do all this work. And I think people kind of took a step back and basically just waited for instruction. And mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, this is I need to be in a position where people know where we're headed and they come to me with the ideas. And, you know, so I quickly had to transition to the whole notion of it's not about you, Melvin. You can't be the one to do this. You got to let people do their thing and get out of the way. Right. Exactly. And that's good leadership, Mel. That's good leadership because you, you, we talk about good people leave organizations because they're micromanaged. They don't have the ability to fly and spread their mm -hmm. wings. Good leadership also talks about how you how you mentor and give direction. Right, one of the things that we do at Camelback that I talk about all the time is that we do a weekly check in with our manager, and in that weekly check in, it's our ability to say, "This is these are my ideas and thoughts. Where can you provide the thought partnership with that?" Mm -hmm. Right, instead of saying, "No, this is my idea, and you're going to implement that." It's Where's the thought partnership in this and how do we come to possibly potentially a better solution together? And so that's the type of leadership that I have I have developed. I love to bring my team in to say, okay, how are you thinking about this? Or maybe you're quiet. What what are your thoughts? What is your your reticence about doing this? Let's have this collaborative nature in this space. Because too often as leaders of color, we have this John Henryism where we've got to mm -hmm. do everything because we've been doing that. Mel, we've been doing everything on our own. And when you bring in a good team, you can you can conquer the world. And if you have good leadership at the top. So it sounds like that's brother, you know, so when you left the elementary school, what, what were your teachers saying about you? I think they were upset to see one of their former students leave. They enjoyed it because I was there for two years and they enjoyed it. I think they know my capacity grew as I was there. And then Westmoreland is a small district, about 2,200 kids. And from a salary standpoint, I was able to go to Prince William County as a principal. Same job, same number of kids, and double my salary. So that's wow. essentially why right. I ended up. So they understood that. But again, you know, with Jeffrey coming before me, they were used to seeing that happen. They saw themselves as, okay, we got another one ready to go out there. And then we're going you know, to cheer for him from afar and be happy for his accomplishments. So they've been very, they were very gracious. It's interesting that that staff, my second grade and third grade teacher and a PE teacher that I also had, that's <laughs> probably, they were all on staff there. Wow. So they had been there for a while. They were institutions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That is Those folks know my mom. <laughs> 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 Come here, little Melvin. <laughs> I know you're my principal, but you was my baby back then. Exactly. And I couldn't I, I couldn't call them by their first names. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely Mr. Stewart was my PE teacher and his son is one of my frat brothers. And I would see him all the time. I pledged his son. And you know, I'd be like, hey Mr. Stewart, how are you doing? You know, you just have that reverence and respect for them. Absolutely. As you get older, let's move a little bit forward. You're a principal at the next county. You're doing your thing. And then 
opportunity to be a superintendent or what was the next trajectory for you after principal? So I moved on to Prince William. I was a principal in elementary school there for four years and a role became available as the coordinator of multicultural education for the district. Mm. People were interested in having me apply for that role. So I <laughs> went ahead and applied. Big, I won the role and I did that for about eight months and we did a lot of good things. Fast paced, we brought in Juwanza Kanjufu, Adolph Brown. I mean, we brought I in a Adolf, lot of Adolph is a green run grad. I did not know he was green run. He was I, a I green known. run grad. Yeah, you know, greatness comes from green run. Yeah, I just want you to know that. <laughs> so we, we had two summits per year that we would schedule and put in place. So we did, that's what I did my first year there. And we got a new superintendent who came in the year, where was I think he was the year before I actually left the building. And as he came in, he also brought some of his own team with him. But then a vacancy came available as assistant, as area assistant superintendent. And I decided I was going to apply for it. Did so and was successful in that. Yes, so I was the area yes. two associate superintendent. So I was over roughly 22 schools, I think it was, about 22,000 kids, something like that. And so I did that for a few years. My kids, my own kids were getting older. And I lived in Fredericksburg, which is, you know, a, a little ways away from Prince William, but not necessarily a bad distance, but a terrible commute. <laughs> right. My kids were in middle school and starting to play sports and I was starting to miss stuff. And I was like, hmm, I, I need to see that. I need to be there for those, for them and, and see those things. So I took a principalship in Spotsylvania County at a middle school. I know where that is. This is all in Virginia, everybody, as you know, all in Virginia. And did that for a couple of years and then realized why I had left the principalship. It's because my capacity, I felt, was bigger. I wanted to do mm -hmm. something else. And that's when I went to a charter school management company as their regional vice president. That moved me to Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. Wow. Speak to that for a second, Mel. You talked about that your capacity had grown. What does that mean? You know, and yeah. as you're thinking about that, how does that move you into the next space of your life? You like the principalship um, is is beneath. Well, let's not say beneath you, but you feel like I've 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 done this, and now I need to expand my wings even further. Working with Steve Waltz and, and Prince William gave me a, a sense that I'd learned so much, and. To, to translate that back into a building is difficult. It's something you have to translate on a much broader scale. I was a little frustrated or feeling sort of boxed in in a school trying to make change when you have all these other things from a district standpoint that disrupt that I felt like I could be part of and getting those. Our job is to get obstacles out of the way of folks so they can be successful. So that became frustrating for me sitting in a building and not being having a larger influence. Mm. So knowing that I had that ability the opportunity to be a regional vice president for a charter school management company, which for a charter school, I didn't even know what it was at the time. Mm. I just, it sounded exciting. It sounded like it was, is world changing. So I'm going to go to Cleveland, Ohio and deal with a bunch of failing schools and we're going to turn them around and we're going to make these great environments for kids in the inner city who actually need them. And so I did that for three years and then decided I wanted to get back in public education. So I went to a district outside of Akron, Ohio, as their director of human resources for two years. Then I served as their deputy superintendent for two years. Then I became a superintendent here in Reynoldsburg. Wow. Wow. That's a wonderful trajectory, man. And, and thinking through that, like, you know, coming from a, a teacher who had been there for seven years, never been an administrator, to now superintendent. But I want to pull back because I know my listeners are going to ask this question of me. And like, why didn't you ask him this? Because you're in New Orleans and New Orleans is full of full of CMOs, <laughs> charter management, right? And so they're going to want to ask me. And so, you know, you work for a CMO for three years, a charter management oh. organization. And yeah. There's some polarization that comes along mm -hmm. with that. 
What was, yeah, what was that like for you working for a CMO? And do you believe that charters are the way, the next way for or the next revolution for education in our country? I'll say this first. If every single traditional public school in the country did its job well and was successful, charter schools wouldn't be necessary. Mm. But we know that's not the reality. They're bad charter schools, just like they're bad public schools or traditional public schools. So I'll just go on record as saying that. And I would say that when I would go to certain districts and they say, oh, we, those charter schools, well, you got a school over here where kids are not getting service. So don't they deserve better too? So, you know, I, I certainly think there's a place. The things I learned, the things I did initially when I first started. So I'm doing personnel, I'm doing real estate allocation. I'm doing curriculum implementation. I'm doing hiring of principals and all of the staff that goes with that. It was a huge amount of responsibility on a large scale for how many schools in Ohio? I think there were eight schools in Ohio and another one in North Carolina. There was travel involved. We've had trainings in New York and uh, in Atlanta. It was exciting when we first started. And once you learn the game, you start to see there's some shadiness here that I just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't continue to, to wrap myself in. It, it just didn't feel right. And that's what gave me the motivation to kind of say, okay, now I've learned these things. How can I learn this? How can this skill set benefit me as I go back into traditional yes, public? Yeah. Right. So in going to Cuyahoga Falls in our, in our interview, we talked about, you know, how might you be of help to us because of your experience? And I said, well, you have two charter schools right down the street that are stealing your kids. I can show you how to market better and get them back. Man, tell the story. Tell so, the story. And I learned that because I, I did. I, I knew how to steal kids from public schools. Exactly. And why and why should kids stay? You know, both of us coming from public education. Absolutely. I, I am a staunch proponent of public education. You know, I, as I said in my post the other day, if you prick me, I don't bleed red anymore, proverbially. <laughs> I bleed Kelly Green, Royal Blue and White. I, I had a wonderful public school education. And as you said, I, I love it that, you know, charter schools you know, are, are not the panacea. No. Ed, but no. Know, Ed reform. And so we do need to change our educational systems. Mm -hmm. But understanding the the benefits of both charter and public and us being able to figure out how do we how are we using public dollars to effectively educate our children? There was a, a statistic and I don't know if the statistic is still the same here in New Orleans now. 2014-2015, of the charter schools in New Orleans were either C, D, or F schools, with a large majority of them being D or F charter schools. You're not serving kids if you're rated D or F. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what pushed me out. I was like, I, I see it. I understand it now. No, this is not what's happening. And I've always said to parents, even with, with private schools, if you opt to go to another school because of family reasons or religious reasons, what have you, that I can accept. I can accept that. Don't leave my school because you think you're going to a better school. That I have an issue with. And I can show you why. The things we talked about, we were putting in our charter schools, we're going to offer these things to kids and they're going to have these experiences. Well, uh, what we didn't say was that we're going to have those experiences if we get 300. But if I only get 75, you're not going to get those things. So it, it, it just it just felt it felt icky to me and I, I couldn't keep doing it. Right, right. And that's interesting because charter schools are, you know, the organization that I work with, Camelback, we sponsor, we fund up and coming charter schools. And, mm -hmm. but most of them, not even most of them, all of them are single site charter schools. So they're not mm -hmm. a part of a, a, a big CMO machine. They want to create potentially and have different sites, but they're thinking sure. about the, the gravity and magnitude of, 
of de developing a single site charter school around their mission and vision. Exactly. And I think about Brandy Williams here in New Orleans with Generation Success, who's having a hard time getting a charter, but her model, twice exceptional children. Think about that, Melvin, right? Students who uh, are on both ends of the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. That's just unheard of. Right. Right. That's unheard of. And so the model is so unique, but we had so many failing schools here in New Orleans that the the, the market has changed where yeah. it's become a turnaround market. And so we're right. not going to open any new charters until we can turn around the schools that we already have. Yeah. And if so we do tough. it right, I think there's a place. I certainly think there's a place. Not every school is meant for every single kid. Maybe they do need another experience. And if that's what's necessary, then so be it. But they should have a viable option that is going to give them as much or more than they would get in the school that they're leaving. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now let's move into your superintendency because I think that that is important and why I'm so intrigued about you. We live in a, a social media age and I can't remember E.E. E. Brickle, who was my superintendent, ever sending out a tweet or, a, <laughs> you know, an Instagram or a Facebook post to motivate his staff. Now, there may have been some other medium for him to motivate staff, but one of the things that I love about you as a superintendent is your engagement on social media. Aaron does the same thing, but I think that you do it in a more robust way. Why do you use social media as a means to galvanize, bring your people together, and motivate them? We have an interesting history. So three years prior to me coming to Reynoldsburg, we were on strike for two weeks. Yeah, you could ask anybody who's been involved with the strike, those remnants stay with you for years. Mm -hmm. And people, they just, they need time to heal from, from that hack. So as I came in the door, we were talking about what can we do to, to mend these relationships and connect back to the community? So I said, okay, well, what's our social media presence look like? As I'm looking and nobody, they were afraid of it. They didn't use it because they felt people were going to get on social media and criticize. It. It's like, well, they're going to do that anyway. <laughs> Why not use it to tell your story? Exactly. You so our goal really was to use social media as a way to one, to motivate. Certainly I try to do that daily, but also to tell our story, to give you a glimpse into what this looks like and what our kids are doing and what our adults are doing and how you can be part of it and how we're celebrating the successes of the things that are happening. I can also give you really quick and dirty information that you can get in an instant and you don't have to worry about some email or letter that's going to be drafted at the end of the day. So it's been a tool that's enabled us to really get out information quickly, but also just change how people perceive our district. There they're seeing kids, they're seeing images of classrooms, they're seeing videos of, of lessons that are happening. They're seeing things that they'd never seen before, but yet assuming they, they knew what this was about. Mm. And it's like, we, we can't let them, it, I've always said, if there's a, a lack of information provided, people will fill that space with something. Yes, they will. You're um, right about that. So for us, that was to fill that space with a bunch of negativity. And so we got to, we got to counteract that. So we use it for, for that right now. Twitter's fun for me because the ki my kids, they love to get on and interact and especially around school closings. Um, <laughs> I, I like to have fun with them when it comes to those. Th those are fun. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. Diving down a little bit more, you use social media as a means to talk about leadership and yeah. your your leadership philosophy. I you know I follow you constantly on all, all all of social media, but you use like for Black History Month, you made sure that you put a post out around Black history and around leadership every day. Why that was purpose. Yeah, exactly. Why why is that a part of your leadership repertoire? You know that people can see you in this space on your social media platform? 
I, I kind of want them to know, I try not to give them too much of my personal self, but I want them to know enough of it so they know what this is This is all built on because it's all about your experiences. But for Black History Month in particular, I, I know the lack of knowledge that exists out there and the lack of recognition of people from underserved populations and marginalized populations and things of that nature. And I wanted to say to them, these are the things that have happened throughout the course of history that you benefit from that people that look like me did for you. Mm-hmm. and have gotten no acknowledgement. There were so many things that people, and it's the second year I've done that, but there's so many things that people just don't know and we take them for granted and we assume these things when that's not what we should be doing. I also want my kids to see, wow, so Garrett Morgan is a black man who invented the stoplight that we see every day? A black man did that? Yes, absolutely. You could do something like that too. Mm -hmm. I want my kids to see that. I want them to understand they don't have to be what other people define them as. They can be whatever they want to be. Exactly. And uh, do it on their own terms if they want. If you want to be a rapper, that's fine. Be a good one. Be the best one. (laughs) Be a a good one. Don't mumble. Do not be a mumble rapper. (laughs) Do not be a mumble rapper. Like, yeah, we grew up on good rap. I appreciate and applaud you for doing that work, uh, particularly around Black history. But you do it every day, whether it's Black History Month or whether it's March the 10th. You know, you're sending something yeah. out every day. And like, again, couching this in leadership, you know, it it speaks to who you are. And why is that so pertinent? I guess I'm asking the same question. But why is that so pertinent to you to put out something every day around leadership, around your leadership philosophy, so not only your students, but your staff and your other constituencies mm-hmm. can see? I think it's important to drop those nuggets so that people can get a feel for the why behind the what. So if they, they they get a feel of my philosophy and then they can understand why we do some of the things that we do in terms of implementation of programming and trying to insta- install and institute restorative justice practices and using things of that nature in order to create a different environment for kids. I also want them to understand that when from a leadership standpoint, I see myself as just another dude who's part of what we're trying to get done. I'm, I'm not special. I'm just as important as anybody else, but not any more important. But we all have our roles we have to fill. And if we fulfill our roles well, each of us, our whole entire organization is going to going flourish. As superintendent, you know, it isn't really my job to say, you do this and you do that and tell you how to do everything. My job is to create an environment in which you feel empowered to do those things yourself. And then I need to get those barriers out of your way. I love what you put up. And and then the little blurbs, it's so impactful. And I think as the leaders of superintendent, when you show that, and it shows that you are caught up in the world. When I, when, I, when I say caught up is that you're using current methods of communication to empower. And that's big. It's such a negative world. You know, people will take the slightest little tidbit of information, be it false or true, doesn't really matter. And all of a sudden that becomes this huge thing. And I'm like, I, I want people, I, I would, if I had my druthers, I want people to get to the point of civility where we assume good intentions when people come to the table and we can learn to disagree again. We live in a world now where we don't know how to do that anymore. We disagree no. on an issue that we like each other. We're done. Uh-uh. We're, we, we are done. One of my close friends that, again, a lot of green run here, she and I were in high school, close, close, close friends. Like we hang out, we laugh. I mean, it is a tremendous like brother-sister relationship. She is the reddest of the red. <laughs> but we have conversations, you know, and one of the things that she talks about, she's like, I just don't hear the other side. And mm-hmm. what I love about our relationship is that we have the ability to hear each other and not use it as, a, as daggers toward each other, but often to find commonality. 
I love that. And we get together, like I said, we laugh, we'll have a beer, you know, and she'll ask. She was like, well, what do you think about this? Because this is this is where my thinking is coming from. And, and it's healthy. It's so healthy because the way that you use social media, Mel, is contrarian to what we see other people in power do. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. To use it for hate mongering and hate mm -hmm. speech and bullying. And that's mm -hmm. not that's not a place that is going to galvanize our country. Not at all. And what I see you do each day is the ability to bring people together. And that's good leadership to me. When you have the ability to bring people together. And I'm sure that your staff, I'm, I'm look, as a leader, everybody's not gonna like you, but I'm sure. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that's I it. I learned that too. <laughs> You know, but I'm sure that as you bring people together, they're saying, you know what, Mr. Brown is doing, you know, he's doing his thing. And the respect that is even going to come when, you know, when it's Dr. Brown, <laughs> you know, that's what they're looking forward to. Mel, you know, we talk about the show being for men and the people who love them and how we can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. As we move into <laughs> the the second half of our life, right? Mm. And, you know, both of us, let me, let me not speak. I'm turning 49 this year. And, <laughs> yeah. So what are you doing to find and embrace the healthiest version of yourself? Uh, I, I've embraced the whole notion of doctor's visits are okay. okay. Yes, they are. <laughs> you, know, you don't feel well, it's okay to go. Mm. Uh, 20 years ago, like, no, nah, I'm not. I'm not going to go. That's a waste of money. So I have a, we have a very good insurance plan. I use it. I've, I've taken to running as, as something that I enjoy doing in the warmer months of the year here in Ohio, especially cold, when I was in, it's pretty cold. So between say late October and March, I don't do a lot of outside running. So I'll get started very soon um, back outside again and do a couple of half marathons this year. I ran my first full marathon in October. Oh, congratulations, brother. First and last. <laughs> but um, that that's given me a sense of peace, but it's obviously also healthy. I, I, I my, my habits have changed. I mean, I, I used to spend a lot of time being caught up on the newest TV show or the newest thing that's going on. And I really don't care about those things anymore. My son tells me I'm getting old because, Dad, you just sound like an old curmudgeon. And I'm like, yeah, you probably right. That's okay. I'll sit in my chair and, and, and tell people to get off my lawn. I've been embracing that. Was all talking to my, my line brothers just the other day about some things we're trying to put together. And they were like, what's up with the beard? What's up with the beard? It's like, I'm embracing who I am. I there enjoy you it. Go. Exactly. Uh, and whether they believe it or not, some folks think it looks good. So. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, let me tell you, you know, it's, it's life affirming and life changing all at the same. No question. So for black men, we have to embrace our health. We have to stay cognizant of who we are and what we're doing and just try to be better versions of ourselves and not be in the position where we're letting ourselves go and doing things that are unhealthy because that's only going to diminish our lifespan, which, mm -hmm. you know, that takes us away from our loved ones we want to spend time with. I look forward to seeing my grandchildren whenever they eventuate. I look forward to spending time with them and doing the things that I never had an opportunity to do as a kid. Like I didn't have a grandfather around doing those things with me. I can't wait. Well, yes, I can, but you know. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I definitely understand. And, you know, as we age and thinking about that, that the, the invincibility wears off, your mm -hmm. cloak of invincibility wears off and you see your mortality and I knew there was going to be a space where I could bring this in. You're thinking about our mortality is that Kobe's death has really sat, sat with me, Melvin. And it places in perspective that 
any one of us, any one of us, from the greatest of us to those who live a, a, a menial life can be taken from us at any point in, in time and in an instant, sure. you know? And so I have begun to look at life much differently now in a sense, yeah. telling myself, you don't know when the good Lord is going to pull you when your time is up. Exactly. So, so do, but also think about the preciousness of what you have mm-hmm. every day. Because nobody thought, nobody, nobody thought on January 26th that we're going to wake up in news that Kobe Bryant, of all people, was killed. I'm still mourning. I felt like I lost a, you know, when I, even when I think about it, I get teary-eyed because it's like I lost a relative. And obviously I didn't know him, but I did. So I, I think it's a, it's a lesson to us that we have to learn to love on each other better. Mm. We have to be much more vulnerable and be able to say to another dude, yo, man, I love you. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes. You know, for years, for years, that was just unheard of. You don't do those kinds of things. You you don't. We have to. We have to embrace each other as, as brothers and, and show appreciation for folks when, when they're in front of you. Yes. Uh, when they're around you. Yes. Uh, yes. So people leave and then, you know, we want to give memorials and things of that nature because then the people don't reap the benefits of that. And who knows what kind of impact that has on someone. You don't know what a person's day might be like, and you look at them and, and you just you haven't heard from them in a while, and you call and say, "Hey, man, just want to say hey, I love you." You don't know what that does for a person. Yeah, it can save someone's life, Mel. Absolutely. Yeah, we have simply. people in the suicide all over the place. We we need to be in a position where we can make sure we're there for each other. Yes. Even if it's just you know, it doesn't even have to be anything that involved. It's not that hard to do. Just be there. No, I, I, I love that you say is that we, we don't have time. As my boy Philip Echo says, give them their roses while they're still alive, dear brother. And, you know, the other thing that I think that we both take away from is that the mama mentality mm-hmm. and that work ethic. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure that my listeners would think about as they hear your story, the work ethic that had to go in to rise from a, a teacher in a classroom to be superintendent, right? To be a black man who is leading a school division. And I know when you go to those superintendent conferences around the country, and there ain't a whole lot of us, right? <laughs> it's not a whole lot of superintendents that look like you. Most around the country than around the state. Around just here in Ohio, we have about 614 districts and there are about 12 of us. Wow. <laughs> right. We're scattered all over the place. So we don't see each other. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. And, you know, being in Ohio, being Ohio's a red state, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that some of the policies that you may have enacted don't sit well. But Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. when we think about leadership and what it means in education for children, not for just some children, right? For children, right? For yeah. students, for all. Equity means for all. Exactly. I'm sure. You know, I'm sure as you think about how does Mamba mentality play out when you have to enact something that does not sit well with your constituency when you know it's best? You know? Well, you know, that goes, it's funny. That's funny you say that because that goes right back to what I try to do with social media. Because of the things I put out there, I, I try to put out seeds of what's to come before they actually come so people can already anticipate what's going to happen. I think people know where I'm going to be with and if they don't like it, they're not going to say anything because they know I'm going to do anything differently. They know that's what's at my core. It's I think it's when things take place that are not part of my core values that they tend to question things now. They, they're in a point where they understand, yeah, we're, we're going to give kids opportunities to, to redo work. Yes, we're going to give opportunities for kids to retest. If a kid doesn't get it in September, 
but he gets it in March. Why should he still have an F? He's earned, he's, right. he's learned it, he's gotten to that point. You so they know. <laughs> yeah, you and Aaron, I'm, I'm sure that you and my brother have had a number of conversations because that was yeah. one of, that was a big L when it came to equity and grading you know, that he had to go through in Virginia Beach, but he keeps pushing, man. He's got that Mamba mentality as well. And I applaud both of you for sitting in positions where you, positions of power, and let's just say that positions of power that allow you to have an impact on children's lives. And you have to be the healthiest versions of yourselves if you're going to yeah. attempt to move policy that's going to impact every kid. Mm -hmm. And so, Mel, I applaud you for everything that you're doing. I applaud you for, you know, the trajectory that you're taking your school division on and the journey. And I just am grateful for the time that you have given me today, you know, to oh, be able to, to be able to reminisce about JMU, <laughs> you know, long time, 25 years, uh, 30 years, you know, we got there 30. at 31 years. If you, you think about it, almost 31 years got there in, because, you know, the story is Melvin and I were both in transition together. <laughs> we, haven't, <laughs> haven't, we haven't told that story. <laughs> crazy. The, the, whole, the whole notion. That, no. that whole thing is crazy. Some of the things that some of us are doing, it's pretty incredible. It is pretty. It is incredible. But if you think about, you know, all of those nights playing spades late, late, <laughs> <laughs> late into the morning or into the morning playing spades, man. God rest Frankie's soul, brother. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Frankie, was, you know, the funny thing about that, we didn't get much time to talk about, you know, black male development. But if we saw Frankie, I, w I wonder what Frankie would be like now at 49. Mm -hmm. You know, Frankie was Frankie was wild. Frankie was a uh, loud Frankie, but he was mm -hmm. I think Frankie just wanted to be loved, just like all of mm -hmm. us. And I would love to have seen the trajectory. Him and Billy, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And Trump, man. It's funny. I, I wonder if Carlton goes by Trump now. <laughs> I still call him Trump. I call yeah. him Trump when I'm at the reunion. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, it's funny because m many of us actually liked Trump before he became president and started acting like, you know, whatever. But we had some good times, man. And JMU has... JMU has built some great people, and I think the camaraderie that we had during those periods of time, whether it would be Omega, Alpha, Sigma, Kappa, yeah. you know, it didn't matter. We were all in the all in the space together, and it was a good time. Those four years were good. phenomenal time. Phenomenal. Yeah. Time. And I think back on the impact that it, I didn't know the impact that it had on me then, mm -hmm. because I mean, I was a mediocre student. I mean, I, let's be let's be real. That's what I was. So was, so was I. But the lessons learned from the relationships, the people, the experiences, those are the things that drove me. It wasn't that C I got in a contemporary lit class mm -hmm. in my junior year. It wasn't that. <laughs> no, it was the, the, the relationships. And yeah, they are so big. Uh, I was up in D.C. speaking and got to catch up with Paul and Deke and just to uh -huh. hang out. And you never realize, you know, in your mind, we're almost 50. Yeah, it's crazy. And but you're still clowning and joking and acting like you did in college, and it's sure. fun. And that's a part of, you know, I, I'll leave it at this. Mel, men still need to play. Yes, that's a huge part of our lives. If we think about being yes. the healthiest version of ourselves, play is so important. And no, you know, sure. I, I think about the relationships that I've been in and the women that I've have seen. They were like, "Why do you always like to spend time with your guy friends? Because it's important." Right. 
We need it. We need that time. We need that camaraderie. We need that laughter. We we need to be the butt of jokes. You need to be Absolutely. the butt of jokes. You know, you need to travel together. And so I I I still prioritize time with my male friends. It's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely important. And that's why I do this show. I get a opportunity to interview old friends, see their success, and help them tell the world how they are building their revolution. So, dear brother, I appreciate it. You know, I look forward to continually following you. And if there's anything that I can do for you to help you on your way, please let me know. I appreciate it, brother. I yeah. enjoyed it. Man. Great to catch up. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. For my listeners, for all the revolutionaries out there, Make sure that you're asking and answering the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? We will see you next time and enjoy this space and time that you're in. Don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because we never know. Stay in the moment. That can be your revolution. Take care, everyone.